The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, this morning we're looking at verses 1 through 11, and I'm beginning a series of messages here for four Sundays entitled, Christmas and the Cross. Christmas and the Cross. We must never forget that the end goal of Bethlehem, the end goal of the babe in the manger, was Calvary. And Jesus was born to die. Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. That law of sin and death. Why did Jesus come to earth as a babe in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago? God the Father knew this. All of us were under this law, this principle of sin and death. Because we are all broken, because we are all imperfect, because we all have faults and failures, because we are all marked by Adam and Eve's fall, we are, all are in bondage to sin and spiritual death. We're all in bondage to immorality, greed, and brokenness, and we're all subject to physical death because of our sin. God sent forth his son Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us, to buy us back from that law of sin and death. Jesus was born to die. And so we're looking at Christmas and the cross from Mark's gospel and reminding ourselves of Jesus' mission on earth. Now, indeed, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is important. We can focus on him as a babe in the manger because the babe in the manger reminds us of this great biblical truth, this doctrine we call the incarnation. God came to live with us. Incarnation. Y'all ever had the carne asada at the Mexican restaurant? Raise your hand. That word carne is related to the word carnos. You hear it in incarnation. Now, when you get the carne asada, you're getting beef, right? You're getting meat. The incarnation teaches us that Jesus came in the flesh. And what a glorious truth we celebrate at Christmas. God himself came to dwell among us, to live the perfect life you could never live, to redeem you, to save you from your sin and from death. So we're thankful for that truth. But the Christmas story should never stop at the incarnation. Consider Philippians 2, 5 through 10, where the Bible teaches us adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. There's the incarnation. And when he had come as a man, listen, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So we celebrate God with us, Emmanuel, the incarnation. But ultimately, as Bible-believing Christians, as Baptists, we, 
understand that Christ came to earth not just for a sentimental Christmas story. He came to earth to go to the cross to redeem all of humanity and to return us and his creation to his original intent. As we turn to Mark's gospel this morning, we're reminded of this important theme, Christmas involves the cross. Christmas is the cross. In Mark 14, 1, Mark transitioned his readers from the glory and mystery of end time events to the path of the cross laid out before Jesus. We covered Mark chapter 13 and talked about Jesus' teaching on the last days. It took several weeks to do that. And now we come to Mark 14, 1. And Jesus here is turning towards Calvary. And the scene begins with a woman, Mark 14, 1 through 11, who anoints Jesus to prepare him for his kingly role on behalf of us. The text begins in verse number one. It says it was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. Many would believe that this is Tuesday. Of course, that's debated by many. The calendar of the Holy Week is often debated. Regardless, in accordance with Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 through chapter 13, verse 2, the Passover was at hand, this holy celebration that commemorated Israel's release from Egyptian slavery. And we know from studying the Old Testament that this holiday was marked by a sacrifice of an animal, an unblemished animal, that animal represented the Lord's release of the Jews from Egypt. So we know here, two days before the Passover, preparations were being made by the pilgrims in order to observe these two holy observances, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. Now it is not by coincidence that Jesus was sacrificed on this occasion. By divine design, in accordance with the Lord's sovereign schedule, Jesus was crucified at the same time as the Passover to show that he, the Son of God, 100% God, 100% man, was the sacrificial lamb who came to earth, babe in Bethlehem, to give his life in order to liberate you from the sting of sin and death. The Bible continues in verse number one. It says the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. The word cunning speaks of trickery and deceit. We know according to Mark chapter 3 and verse number 6 and Mark chapter 11 verse 18, the religious leaders in their self-righteousness and their thirst for power and their desire to keep up their human structure of religion, they have been plotting and scheming in a sinister fashion to do away with Jesus. 
It seemed that Jesus, to many, was a mere victim, but the sovereign God of all things had ordained all of this for his purposes, to save you from your sin, to wash you of all of your transgressions, to give you new life through the Holy Spirit in your soul, to purchase your redemption so that one day when the Lord judges this earth and destroys it, one day when the Lord creates a new heaven and a new earth, because of the Christmas story, you, if you will place your faith in Christ, can live in the new heaven and the new earth. So they were scheming and cunning, but this was all because of the plan of God. The Bible tells us in verse number three, as the scene continues, that he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now we see him here again at Bethany. We, we know from earlier Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11 in verse number one that Jesus had traveled down from his home region to Jerusalem and during the holy week pilgrims often stayed in the suburbs around Jerusalem and stayed in rented accommodations. Our Lord had perhaps stayed at this house or he did indeed stay at this house in Bethany. He had his friend Lazarus there remember whom he raised During the week, Jesus and his disciples stayed in Bethany and they made the two-mile trek each day back and forth during the Holy Week to Jerusalem. And here we have a scene of intimacy and of fellowship and of Jesus with some of his closest friends and confidants. And the Bible says he was reclining at the table. He was here at the house of Simon the leper. Many believe that this was a man who was previously a leper who was saved by Jesus, who was healed by Jesus. He had experienced physical transformation on the exterior, but he had also experienced spiritual transformation on the interior. This is a convert, a person who had gone from death to life, from darkness to light. He is a Jesus follower. And get the picture, Jesus this morning, though you are like a leper and maybe you've been destroyed and marred and marked by sin, Jesus wants to help you and Jesus wants to heal you. But get this, after being healed, Simon the leper hung out with Jesus. And notice the mode of our Christian life. After we've been saved, the Lord wants us to learn how to walk with him, to have regular and daily intimacy with him, to hang out with him. And that's what Simon the leper is doing here. Get this, the Christian life isn't about you trying to be good, you trying to overcome your vices and your addictions through your own strength. The Christian life is about a soul to soul, John 4, 24, relationship with the Lord, whereby he transforms you from the inside out. Learn to be like this leper of old. Be careful you don't have churchianity without Christianity. Learn to abide in Christ so that you can bear much fruit. Walk in the word. Be a person of prayer. Put Jesus at the center of all that you are. Spend time with him. So Jesus is here in Bethany, reclining at the table. And then we see in the midst of this an occurrence. An occurrence this Christmas season that teaches much about how we should live the Christian life. 
We see a woman in the text approach Jesus and she stands according to the will of our Lord, verse number nine, as a memorial for all generations. She stands this morning as an example for us this Christmas season of our need to have total devotion to King Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the babe in Bethlehem who became sin for us. So I wanna look at this text this morning and speak on the subject of total devotion. This Christmas season, let's not look at the babe in Bethlehem in such a way that we miss the real reason for the season. Let's remember that Jesus was born to die and let's remember that his work on the cross calls us to total devotion, total commitment, total consecration to him. Jesus, while he was on earth, taught us, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. This woman's act we're going to see stands an example for us of our need for real commitment to the Lord. Now, it's been football season, and some of us have been watching games. I often like when they have these fan contests. Have you ever seen these? We're going to find the biggest fan, the biggest college football fan. A few years ago, they wanted to find the biggest Major League Baseball fans. And they took these guys who had been selected as the biggest Major League Baseball fans, and they put them in a bachelor pad in New York City for months on end to do nothing but watch baseball. That's not what those guys needed. I was thinking those guys need to get a real job. So oftentimes they look for the biggest fan, and you've seen these people, right? Help them, Jesus. They're a little bit psychotic. Many times we see these contests looking for the biggest fan, and Jesus hasn't necessarily called us to be his fan. He's called us to be followers, but we're reminded for people who can be so rabid in their devotion to a sports team, Oh, would to God that in 21st century Christianity we'd have some folks that fulfill the words of our Lord to seek first the kingdom of God, to have total devotion, to be like the woman who Jesus said in this text is to be a memorial for us. Let's look at her life. How can we live with total devotion to Jesus? Now that's just my introduction. And now I've got three ways for you that we can pursue total commitment, total devotion to our Lord. Number one, I would give this piece of advice. We can draw this principle from the example of the woman in our text. Number one, make 100% your goal. Make 100% your goal. I can remember when I was in college, I had an older pastor who was like a mentor to me, and we were talking on one occasion about life priorities and he asked me, Patrick, what are your priorities? And I put them, to Pastor Don, out into a list. And I had God, number one. Number two, I think I had school at that time. Number three, I had my work. And he, would say, he said, I would encourage you to do this, Patrick. Patrick, remove God from number one. Go ahead and bump your list on up. Whatever's number two, put it number one and just continue your list and remove God from the list. 
Wow. Is this guy cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? What's he talking about? He said, I would encourage you to make your list and to not have God at a list and then to put a bracket out to the side of the list, one through five, one through seven, one through 10, no no matter how many priorities you may have, and then out to the side of that bracket, put a label that says the Lord and aim to have the Lord infused into reigning over all of your priorities. His point was this, sometimes as Christians, we're, we're bad about saying, putting God in a place and saying God's number one and we, we interact with him on Sunday or we have our quiet time in the morning. We fail to see that the Lord is to be the center of it all. We see in our text here a great example of a woman who anoints Jesus and displays total devotion to the Lord. Look at what the text says in verse number three. It says, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. Now I have zero clue what an alabaster jar is. Furthermore, I have no idea what pure nard is. So let's look at the text. It says she pours this material on Jesus, she poured it on his head. Other gospels will tell us she also applied it to his feet. The word poured here alludes to the act of one anointing, anointing another. Everybody say that word anointing. In the ancient world to do this was a sign of honor to another. Now, for us, we don't anoint people. Please, if you're with me at a Christmas party, don't get the idea to come and break a jar over my head and pour olive oil over my head. You can honor me in another way, all right? Just say something nice about me. But in the ancient world, this is what you do if you want to show honor to a person. Furthermore, in a Jewish world, Jews knew that pouring oil on another person had messianic undertones, a messianic Messiah, a messianic in that this act was reserved for one one anointed a king of Israel or Judah. Think of Saul, 1 Samuel 10, 1, David, 1 Samuel 16, 13, Solomon, 1 Corinthians 1, 39, and Jehu, 2 Corinthians. 2 Kings 9, 6. So this woman, as she approaches Jesus, what is she doing in her devotion? She is acknowledging that Jesus is king. Jesus is the one promised by God the Father. Going back to Genesis 3, 15 and Genesis 12, 1 through 3, He is the promised one of Israel who was to come and crush Satan's head and bring deliverance to all the nations. She recognizes Jesus as the anointed one. And so she anoints him with a very expensive perfume of pure nard. What is this perfume of pure nard? Now I have very little experience with perfumes or colognes. 
I remember the one time I tried to wear cologne. Somebody had given me a gift of an expensive cologne, and I put it on on Sunday morning. I thought this will be my Sunday morning smell good. I'll be the preacher with this expensive cologne. I went to my Sunday school room that morning. I was sitting and waiting for the class to start, and some guy walked into class. He said, y'all smell that? Somebody said, I don't know. What, what are you talking about? He said, it smells like cat pee in here. That was the last time I ever wore cologne. So I don't have much experience with colognes or perfumes. But here we see this woman pours pure nard on Jesus. This was spike nard. Came from a plant from India. It was of great value and very popular in the ancient Near East. One has said, one historian said it had the foremost place among perfumes. It one pound of unprocessed spikenard costs about 100 denarii, a quarters of a year's worth of earnings. So this woman has this valuable perfume stored in an alabaster jar. Alabaster was a fine grain, translucent form of gypsum, and it was often used for preserving ointments in the first century world. This woman brings this jar or this vase to Jesus, ready to anoint him, showing that in faith she believes he is the promised one of Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12.1-3. She believes that he is the one, Isaiah 53, spoken of by the prophets to come and redeem humanity. She approaches with this alabaster jar and the Bible says, that she broke the jar and poured it on his head. Now this type of jar would have been wide at the base and become slender at the neck in order to prevent one from overpouring. But what does this lady do? She breaks the jar. Many believe she breaks off the neck of the jar in order that she can completely evacuate and empty the contents of the jar on Jesus' head. She isn't trying to restrict the poor. She isn't being careful that she might spill out too much. Instead, she breaks it and she makes sure she can empty all of it, all of it, every last drop onto the head of Jesus. The woman's act stands as a lesson for us. Jesus deserves and Jesus desires for us to give him our all. We should love him with all our heart, soul, and mind, our Lord said, Matthew 27, 22, 37 through 38. Nothing should compete with our affection for him. He should not just be number one. He should be all in all. He should permeate all that we are and all that we do. He should be the first principle in our lives and he should occupy, occupy the first place in our hearts. As Jesus called us, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things of life will be added to you. So be careful that none of the things of life, job, work, clothes, cars, food, ever get in the way of Jesus. Our priorities, our possessions, our calendars, our careers, our friendships, our futures, our talents, and our treasures 
should all be poured out, completely evacuated and emptied before Jesus. Because of the lavish spiritual gifts we've received from him, such a sacrifice shouldn't seem strange. One has commented on all that Christ has done for us by coming to earth. He said, if a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think too good or costly. He will never think anything too good or costly to give to Christ. He will fear wasting time, talents, money, infections on the things of this world, but he will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior. He will fear going into extremes about business, money, politics, and pleasures, but he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. And get the lesson that this lady gives us. Jesus deserves our all. He should be the first principle permeating all that we do. Where is the Lord as a priority in your life? Is he just somewhere on your list? Or is he all in all? Do you need to work at making sure that you view your career through the lens of King Jesus? Do you need to regard your family with a Christian perspective? Do you need to repent of some way in which you've become so busy that you give little thought to Jesus during your daily activities? See the example of this this woman and do some soul searching. Oh, may we, as God's people, regularly examine our work time, our fun time, our family time, and make sure that Jesus is like a finely woven thread through all of those things. Make 100% your goal. Number two this morning, how do we have total devotion? The lady in our text teaches us that, number two, we can't back down because others criticize our faith. So to make it personally applicable to your life, I'd say don't back down because others criticize your faith. Look at verse number four and get this. Know this great principle. Whenever you aim to do something great for the Lord, you can expect criticism. In fact, I would say this. If you're not facing criticism, you're probably not trying to do something for the Lord. When you aim to have 100% devotion, there will be people, even church people, who won't like your devotion. Why? Because when a light begins to shine, the darkness or the dim lights often tell the bright light, hey, tone it down, you're making us look bad. And that's what we see going on in our text here. It says, but some were expressing indignation to one another why was this perfume been wasted this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor the bible says they began to scold her now notice their complaint they're focused on money material things their complaint is this perfume has been wasted. It might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii was a a year's wages for 
a man in the first century. The historian Pliny has remarked, confirming what the Bible says here to a degree, that a finished vase of nard cost around 400 denarii. So the disciples aren't too far off. And by the way, we probably see Judas here, though he's not named. And Judas is thinking about, how can I make the money purse fatter? Now notice here, based on what Pliny said, that Judas' estimation or the disciples' estimation is really close. I mean, the historian tells us that a vase like this would cost around 400 denarii, and the disciples are nearly right on the money, literally and figuratively. Have you ever noticed how greedy people are often so good at telling you how much stuff costs? They can tell you the blink of an eye how much a certain car costs, how much a certain house costs, how much somebody spent on the jacket they're wearing. The love of money is the root of all types of evil. And for many people, their love of money and material things drives them to be experts on money and material things, to constantly place valuations on things. And so that's the case with the disciples. And the Bible says they began to scold the woman in our text for her act. The, the word scold is a strong one in the original Greek language. It's a word that meant literally to snort. If you ever been so mad at your kids that you snort at them, now, I've laughed so hard that I've snorted. I can remember the first time I saw the movie Elf and the Norwalk came up out of the water and he said, bye, buddy, hope you find your dad. I don't know why. That was like the funniest part of the movie to me. I <laughs> snorted. Laura said, that's so embarrassing when you do that in a movie theater. Please stop. People are looking at us. I'm like, it's dark. They don't even know who we are. Who cares? The disciples here snort not out of laughter, but out of anger. The idea of the text is that they are rude to this woman. Many would say that they're even misogynistic towards these women. They personally berate her. They depict a passionate displeasure and anger towards her. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Verse 6. Leave her alone. The language involves an aorist imperative verb. You don't need to know what that means, but know that it has this consequence. Jesus is commanding them in original language to stop the action in progress. Right now, stop it. Leave her alone. It's a tone of command. Jesus here strongly corrected his disciples. In his mind, their bullish behavior was uncalled for. Instead of condemning the woman, Jesus commends her. He turns the tables on his disciples and shows them once again how ignorant they are to the ways of the kingdom. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. I love those words, noble thing. They're beautiful words. The same Greek language used in Ephesians 2:10, where the Bible says that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
The language here in Ephesians 2.10, many scholars would say it contains the word from which we get our word poetry. It speaks of the way in which we're to be a work of art, a noble, beautiful display of Jesus' graces for a dark world. Jesus corrects the disciples. The woman had done a noble thing. Yet they are in a posture of rude condescension towards her. For them, their complaint may have seemed justified. You see, in the first century, many Jews, like your preacher, considered perfumes or colognes to be an unnecessary expense. Now, I'm not trying to step on your toes or meddle if you've got perfume or cologne on this morning. But in the first century world, a faithful Jew would say, that's something that belongs to the Romans. There's no need for us to spend our money to smell better, to wear perfumes or colognes. On top of that, because an aromatic scent vanished in a relatively short amount of time, it seemed foolish or even ungodly for Jews to spend a large amount of money on such a substance. So for Jesus' disciples, they probably felt vindicated in correcting this woman. On top of that, remember this. They knew that Jesus had been born, but they didn't understand why he had truly been born. They believed that his earthly kingdom would begin at any moment, Mark 10, 37 and 14, 47. As a result, they were looking to hoard up and to store money to have a good savings and a good fund for the moment when Jesus began to vanquish the Romans. Know this about criticism. Many times your criticizers feel completely justified in the criticisms they give towards you. You live the Christian life. You try to be a holy person. You try to advocate for what is right in this world. There are ungodly people who don't know Christ. They are lost, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. They have been blinded by the God, lowercase g, of this age. And they think that they're doing everyone a favor by criticizing and mocking your devotion to the Lord. There are people in our community who think they are standing up for what's right when they criticize our churches or other churches who gather for worship. Understand this, if we want to have total devotion to the Lord, we can't back down because of others who criticize our faith. Thanks be to God for this woman 2,000 years ago who wasn't scared of unruly, selfish disciples who criticized her faith, but she, in faith, showed total devotion to the Lord. So as you live life in a 21st century world, remember this great principle. Criticism often reveals more about the criticizer than the one being criticized. Our complaints against others many times say more about us than they say about others. As it is with most human complaints and criticisms, the disciples' words revealed the state of their hearts. They were ignorant of the cross, they were ignorant of the gospel. They wanted a powerful political kingdom. They wanted Jesus to rule on the earth at that moment. And they were guilty of violating the Lord's great commandment that he had given back in Mark 12, 29. So we see a great principle for us here. 
as we consider how to live the Christian life in this messed up, confused world, if we want to have total devotion, we've got to aim for 100%, and then we've got to expect criticism and not allow it to deter us. We can't back down. I'd like to share details this morning, but I faced this upfront and personal this week in our community. And I had to look at the very text I'm preaching to you and remind myself to consider the source, to remember that the world has never been a friend of the church. And the darkness often despises the light. And may God have mercy and pity because such people don't even realize that the reason they get so angry at Christians sometimes is their own conscience is convicted of their own godliness, their own immorality, their own drunkenness. And they don't even know what's going on in their soul. Why is it that we even have movements in our society that say, you have to affirm my immorality? Why do they want affirmation? They're not even aware of it. Their own conscience is convicting them that they're wrong. And they're just pleading for the church, embrace us and accept us and put your stamp of approval on us. Or we'll accuse you of being a bigot. Why do they need approval? Somewhere in their soul, they know they are living ungodly and unrighteous lives. And so church, let's not change the gospel. Let's be careful when we see conventions and denominations backing down and changing to please the world. Let's contend, as Jude said, earnestly for the faith. Let's do what Paul said, stand up for the truth and love. Don't be deterred by those who harshly criticize your devotion to Christ. I can hear them now when I became a believer and I was living for the first time in my life really devoted to Christ, working in Atlanta and my friends mocking me because I wouldn't drink with them when we went out to eat lunch on our lunch break, mocking me because I want to go party with them, mocking me because I aim to stay pure in my relationships with girlfriends. Don't be discouraged when the world scoffs at your convictions. Realize that such complaints have existed since the time of Jesus and they will exist until Christ returns. Don't back down when others criticize your faith. Lastly, let's look at this one last point, and I promise this will be my shortest point in the sermon. Number three, take joy in the fact that Jesus sees what you do for him. How, how can we live with total devotion this Christmas season? How can we honor Emmanuel, God with us, and what he did by coming to Bethlehem? Aim for 100%. Don't back down when others criticize you. But lastly, take joy in the fact that Jesus sees what you do for him. Jesus said in verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, I love Jesus' estimation of this woman's good work, the noble things she had done. He said, she has done what she could. The language literally in the Greek is, what she had, she did. Since I did that, she did the best she could with what she had. And this sheds light on the way in which Christ judges Christian service. You may not feel like the smartest. You may not feel like the most charismatic. 
You may not feel like the most gifted, the most holy, but guess what? If you will do the best you got with what you have, the best you can with what you've got, excuse me, the Lord from heaven will see and take great delight in your faith. Oh, sometimes I can feel insecure as a pastor and as a preacher, and I feel like Solomon of old, Lord, I'm not equipped to do this. Who am I to stand and share your word with people? How could I ever lead a church? And the Lord often reminds me from texts like this, I haven't called you to be the best or the brightest. I've just called you to take the little bit I've given you and use it for my glory. And he says the same to you, believer. Right now you have a degree of spiritual gift You have some resources. You have some mental capacities. None of us can attain the measure of the Lord's wisdom, but we've all got a little bit, and if we'll use it for his glory, the Lord will take great delight. This is his measure of judging us. This is his desire for our faithfulness. As the Lord said in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. The Lord's just looking at what he's given you and how you use it. Now, look at what the Lord says. So that's how what the woman did. She took all that she had and just gave it, consecrated it to the Lord. And then the Lord says in verse 9, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, Jesus was a prophet. He prophesied many things. He prophesied that all his disciples would run and reject him. We'll look at that in a couple couple weeks as they all initially did run and deny him. He prophesied many things. He prophesied that the temple would be destroyed, and it was indeed destroyed in A.D. 70. Here he prophesied, one day people will share this story in memory of this woman. And here we are today, 2,000 years later. Holy Spirit inspired this passage of Scripture to fulfill the words of Jesus. And here on December 6, 2020, Christmas season, we're talking about this woman's devotion, proving that Jesus' words were true, demonstrating also that the Lord takes great delight in acts of service and sacrifice towards him. Now, he says this will be told in memory of her. Our our Lord's words may not seem like a big deal at first glance. We may say, wow, that's nice. Jesus honored her. But get this, Jesus is talking to a room full of men. And in a first century world, his pronouncement was provocative by first century standards. Women weren't regarded as ones to be memorialized. Women were often relegated to a second-rate status of insignificancy in a male-dominated world. They were told to be silent, to not even talk in public settings. They weren't even allowed. If a woman saw two men fight and one kill another and there were no other witnesses, a woman wasn't even allowed to testify in a court. Yet Jesus is saying what this woman has done here will be held as a memorial throughout the ages. As Mark did with the resurrection scene in Mark 16.1, Mark memorializes 
a woman. And the Lord shows through this scripture, Galatians 3.28, to be true that in Christ there is neither There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Sure, there may be different functions and roles in lives at at different times, but the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Jesus takes great delight in what you do for him. Jesus sees your devotion. And you may not be the preacher this morning, you may not be a deacon, you may not be the worship leader, you may not be on any committee, but the little bit you do for Jesus ascends into the heavens and the Lord sees it and takes great delight in it. This morning you may not feel like you have many gifts, you may not feel like you are wise according to this world, but if you take what you have and pour it out as an offering to Jesus, the Lord can use it for his glory in this generation. Woman's act of worship in our text teaches us the path of true greatness. While the disciples sought to get things from God, she sought to give. And she's a memorial for us of total devotion. Spiritual greatness comes through selfishness, selflessness, excuse me. Fix that. Don't hear what I said. (laughs) Spiritual greatness comes through selflessness and service. As we live in a world that seems crazy about self-seeking and storing up stuff, May we remember that that type of lifestyle does not pan out or pay off. And Jesus said, Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Mark 9, 35, he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. So take joy when you humble yourself and live with total devotion and give of your all to the Lord. The Lord sees, he looks at your life and says, That's what I desire. And one day, the judgment seat of Christ will prove that following in the footsteps of this woman and following in the footsteps of our Lord is indeed worth it. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.